You can never have both sides winning. That's literally impossible. Compromise means you lose some, you win some. But both sides winning all they want, that's by definition impossible. In fact, I would argue almost all cultural civilizations were built upon excluding people. Hello again from The Empire's New Clothes, the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. We're about to speak with John Nye. He's a professor of economics at George Mason University, and he's got some really cool, wide-ranging thoughts and concepts he's going to throw at us today. And they have to do a lot with inequality, culture wars, and the future of Western civilization. Could it get bigger than that? I don't know. And before we jump in, if you like what we're doing here, I got a single request for you. If you could just tell one friend about our show, it would make all the difference. We really appreciate you watching, and I hope you enjoy. John, thanks so much for being here this morning. Looking forward to having a pretty uh, fascinating conversation. Well, um, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> yeah. So we've uh, before we got on here, you sent me a bunch of information some of the things that interest you about this topic we're talking about here on our show, which is the rise and fall of empires. Mm -hmm. And you've got some pretty fascinating concepts and topics that I'd love to dive into. And I think first, let's just get a little bit of your background and what makes John John, how'd you get interested in this space to begin with? Well, I mean, I grew up in the Philippines during the martial law era under Marcos. And so there was a lot of concern about that. And so one of the reasons I went to college in America was as insurance for my family. Uh, okay. But, uh, you know, uh, on the other hand, I couldn't afford. So I was very lucky to get scholarships. I initially did physics and a side major in literature. And then right. I uh, switched to economics where I got my PhD in economics. And then later on, I worked for 22 years with Douglas North. So I became very interested in institutional questions, which are the questions of why are some nations rich? Why are some nations poor in the long run? And what is the nature of good institutions? Why are they hard to create? Why are they sometimes unstable, etc.? So these questions have been part and parcel of my professional career and also my personal interest for quite some time. Interesting. Well, we're certainly living through a pretty... Um interesting moment in time in reference to institutions for sure, because we've got some strong ones yet. It seems like there's definitely this, this movement out there of some, we're, we're questioning our institutions. We're wondering, mm -hmm. are they here for us? And, and uh, so you must have plenty to research every day. Well, you know, it, it's a uh, research is a funny thing. There are things you do because you want to do them. And there's things you do because that's just the way you can get them published. So uh, <laughs> ac academia is a business like anything else. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Well, let's dive into um, your concept of positional goods. And okay. I hadn't heard of this phrase before you um, sent this over to me. But as I started thinking about it, it's such a big driver of our conversation today about inequality. Right. And so maybe let's just break down first what's a positional good, and then we can relate it to um, you know, things that are happening today. Right. Strictly speaking, positional goods are those which are not, uh, in some sense, independent of who else consumes them. In other words, you care about them for the relative rank. Let's take a very simple example, but one that people think about a lot. They'll often sort of say, I want a top university education. Well, in terms of learning, more universities and colleges have PhDs today than they've ever had in history. And with the internet, you can literally learn almost everything by yourself. So mm -hmm. in terms of absolute learning, you can do pretty much, pretty well at almost any university. In fact, people often without university who have access to them, like in some poor country, can learn quite a lot just by going online. This was not available 25 years ago. But if you want to be at the world's top 10 universities, by definition, there are only 10. Even if we stretch <laughs> it to sort of say that 20 universities consider themselves top 10, we're still talking about a limited group. So whether or not 
you, the, the, if, if the population that wants to go and is capable of going to those universities increases by a factor of 10, there are, by definition, only 20 top universities. And you might say, um, well, that doesn't matter as long as people get a good education. But if what you're buying at the top university are, are the experiences with top peers, both in terms of learning and in terms of networking, then by definition, the advantage of being at the top will never go away. Mm-hmm. And, and the irony is that the richer we are, the more unequal this becomes. Because if you're too poor to afford any college at all, and college isn't widely available, then simply going to college is a big step. But as going to college becomes more and more the norm, at least of those who are academically qualified, then what happens, it's less about finances, and it's a whole lot more about um, where you are in the totem pole. And this is very important because economic growth can produce more cars more houses, and more medicine. It cannot produce more top universities. It cannot produce more top land. It's why on, at one and the same time, in 99% of America by land, it's actually cheaper and easier to get a nice house than it's ever been. The only problem is everybody wants to live in this 1% of all the areas. And the 1% of 1% of areas costs yeah. way more than anything else. No, no matter... How rich everybody gets, the average gets, only the richest will, by definition, be able to afford the top few plots of land in Manhattan, say, or San Francisco. So is this about status? No, it's what's, not what's just driving about the desire. Well, it's two things. There are some people who want the status, but sometimes it's about access. For example... A lot of people have the option, especially middle-class educated people, of getting a job at the lower income, say in Indiana or Iowa, versus, say, Manhattan, New York or San Francisco, right? But if you're interested in working, say, in the tech industry and maintaining contacts, then very often you are much more limited in terms of where you work. So there are spillovers. So even if you don't care a flip about status, even if you actually dislike New York City, if you are in, the, say, the news business or it's lots of other publishing or whatever, that's where you have to be to make the connections. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, the positional good has both uh, a status component, but also it has this component where there are externalities. That is, more people are affected. As more and more people, it's a little bit... It, it, there's an aspect of positional goods which overlaps with what are called network goods. Network goods are situations under which the more people use a network, the more valuable it becomes, right? Mm-hmm. So if everybody's logging on to Facebook, it's a lot harder to create a competitor because you actually have to shift the bulk of users of Facebook away to this competitor in order to reach, say, the average person who goes online. And positional goods are not network goods necessarily, but the combination of both are things that we cannot hope for more as we go richer. They're Mm -hmm. inherently limited. And then there's non-positional goods, but that become positional. uh, Those are goods which simply cannot, which are highly desired, but which are by definition fixed. An example is Picasso's. No matter how rich you are, if a lot more people who are as rich as you want Picassos. Picassos will keep going up in price, right? Your only mm-hmm. hope is that if you really want a Picasso is that people lose interest in Picasso and he becomes unfashionable. Then you can get one at a good price. But barring that, it doesn't matter if suddenly everybody in America is given a million dollars. It will still, it will actually become harder than ever to get a Picasso. Well, that's pretty interesting. I interviewed a guy named Kevin Coldiron a bit ago, and mm-hmm. he co-authored a book about the rise of – it's called The Rise of Carry, how the world is turning into a big carry trade. And the big part of their theory is this idea of cumulative advantage, which it mm-hmm. sounds like you're describing with positional goods and why they're also desirable because – take your example of Silicon Valley – if I'm able to get that top 1% of 1% of land close to these, what you could almost say socially and career-wise, more close to that nexus of a network effect, mm-hmm. the wealth advantage 
is going to be much greater and, and your network connection. It's all like stacking. It, it's almost reflexive, it sounds mm-hmm. like. So the, the closer you are. Be, if I can stop you, it doesn't have okay. to have this winner-take-all cap- uh, component, okay. right? That's yeah. the point. The main point is that it's fixed or not fixed so much as gotcha. it's unaffected by technology. Technology won't make it more available to everybody. That's the real okay. thing, right? So, so for ex- a very good example is um, the choice of which language the country uses. That's kind of positional good, and that affects you no matter where you are in the United States. Hmm. So that's not like Silicon Valley. Interesting. So there are issues of cultural pride and also which culture you're going to promote. So debates about whether one language is the official language or not, say Canada with its the role of English versus French, this is, has a positional quality. Mm-hmm. So will a prospering economy, uh, an economy that grows, will it always produce positional goods? Well, I think of it another way. All economies have positional goods. But think okay. about it this way. A lot of the progress we've made, most of it, in fact, in the economy in the last 300 years, has been to make more and more goods widely available to everybody. I'll mm-hmm. give you a classic example. At one point, salt was very important. The term salt, you know, salary comes from the Roman salarium, which was mm-hmm. not about income. It was about the salt ration given to Roman soldiers in classical huh. times. And of course, you may know that taxation and salt was such a big deal that it played a big role in revolts and revolutions and whatnot. And yet today, salt is so cheap that nobody runs out to the store and say, somebody comes in, hey, did you hear Bradford? They're cutting salt down price by like 15 cents a can. Let's go buy 10 cans of salt. Nobody does that. So think about what happens. In the last 100 years, the abundance of many common goods means it almost drops out of the equation when we're thinking about inequality. Right. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? The better technology gets, the higher economic growth gets, the more equal we become, at least in terms of the minimum of a given thing. At one time, TVs were rare. Now, every, almost everybody has a television. Big screen TVs are increasingly common. They're very cheap. Uh, in the 30s, people you know, used as an example of outrageous luxury to have more than one home, phone in the home. Right. And they said, you know, only a, you know, only a crazy billionaire would waste, you know, would feel the need to have two or three phones in the house. Right. On the other hand, the more things that become relatively equal, the more important the things that you can't equalize are. Hmm. Think about it another way. If someone were to give you a Star Trek box where you could literally reproduce any physical thing you want. You want foie gras, you've got it. You want gold, you've got it. You want diamonds, you've got it. You want this fine tool or this cool watch, you've got it. What is that going to mean? That means most goods that will fit in that box, we will think about like salt. Right? Mm -hmm. Everyone will have it. But that means there will be more fighting over things like who gets to live in the good school districts? Who gets to live in the nice cities? Right? Who gets special political privileges? Beauty, if if those are hard, natural beauty, that's that's very hard to just create. So that will be a bigger marker of inequality. Intelligence will be a bigger marker of inequality. Political influence will be a big marker of inequality, and that will lead to more fights because you can't have everybody equalize on those margins. So it sounds like you're saying, and I'm putting this to you to try to understand here. It sounds like you're saying we're measuring currently, at least in our culture, let's say mm-hmm. Western society in the U.S., we're measuring inequality based on positional goods, which by definition can't be equal? No, I'll say it another way around. The way we okay. measure positional goods, no, the way we measure income inequality mixes up things that can be equalized with things that are more positional. Gotcha. And what's happened, so for example, somebody will, people will always complain about housing, but they're mm-hmm. really not complaining about housing. They're complaining about housing where the good districts are. Mm-hmm. So that if you think about the problem as housing, making houses cheaper helps quite a lot of people, especially the poorest. 
But a lot of middle class people complaining about housing costs, they're not really complaining about the cost per se. They're co complaining about the cost in the areas they would like to live in. It, it feels almost insidious in a way. I mean, there's an element to it where the masses are competing for something that the masses can never fully attain. It, it sounds like the basis of the proverbial rat race almost. Well, one of the ironies is that the lower, if you're very far down, you're just happy to have a nice place, good home and so forth. So in some sense, you're, the rat race is less important to you. It's actually the middle, the one that, the, that can satisfy a lot of their common desires that are the ones who are unhappy. In fact, I would argue that, for example, your typical kind of struggling artist or young, young professional in New York City who would be making a fortune by the standards of most other cities, but it's, insists on staying in New York, they're the ones who are most annoyed by positional goods. Huh. They are by average Americans, you know, if you're making like $80,000 a year in New York City, that's not really that much money unless you have family help. But it's, it's really vastly higher than the average income of an American. And yet, yeah. how many of those people, if you told them, we'll let you move to Peoria and we'll even give you a free house, but you can never move back to New York City and you'll earn only 60000 a year? A lot of people would say no. To the extent they'd say no for either professional or personal reasons, they are caught in the positional rat race. And so the view of what the world is like and its problems is going to be skewed by that. Mm -hmm. So is power a positional good? Absolutely. P power is the very definition of positional good because Let's power dive into implies that a, bit. a hierarchy. How might that be connected to our culture wars that are? Oh, absolutely. Out? I think that's connected a lot. That is to sort of say, I mean, that, those are not the only reasons for it, but a lot of the culture wars have to do with the fact that I would say on the one hand, you have people who have worked to denigrate the traditional culture and to work to speed up social changes. And their definition of being regressive is wanting slower social changes. And conversely, the other side sees social norms and cultural values that have been taken gra for granted for generations. It's not that they necessarily object to change. It's a necessary the, the point of view that if you don't want change, you are by definition backward or evil. And it's that conflict that's actually the problem. So some people measure, for example, to take something like, um, I've said this before, Many of the thing, values that Trump espoused that pe made people upset would be things that Eisenhower would be familiar with. But when people think about Eisenhower, they think of him as a very moderate president. So the objection is not that Trump's positions were the, are strange by U.S. history, but it's a debate about whether things that were valued in the 50s and 60s should be valued today. The same is true over statues, and it, the, the Confederate statues are just a distraction. You see now attacks on the founding fathers. You see now attacks in the U.S. Constitution itself. And you, at, what, at what point? I mean, one group sees the nature of a nation as fully malleable. The other says part of what keeps America America is grounding in these principles, even if we've strayed from them. And that is totally positional. There's, you know, you can have a compromise, but you can never have both sides winning. That's literally impossible. Compromise means you lose some, you win some. But both sides winning all they want, that's by definition impossible. In fact, I would argue almost all cultural civilizations were built upon excluding people. Those that did not exclude some views we'll often find that things are unstable. If you allow, I mean, just think about it yourself. If you allowed, you know, any choice, imagine that every school gets to decide what language they'll teach in. Every city gets to decide what signs they'll put up. And just think about that simple issue of language and you realize how important the positional good of language homogeneity matters for the well-functioning of the system. It's one of the reasons why the EU struggles, right? EU wants to be a unified community, but the facto, the likelihood that everyone will speak the language of their partners in the EU is low. So very often you speak in English and international trade is like that. You will have a Russian and Japanese doing business in English. Mm -hmm. 
And some people resent that, right? So there are a lot of cultures that resent the fact that the English has become de facto the norm for international communications. Some of that, and that is not something that was legislated. It just happened. So let's focus on the U.S. And, and the question for you is, why are we battling over the positional good of power now in this way instead of more cooperative like we have been in the past? What has changed? I think there are two big changes. One is that I think there is more polarization on core social cultural norms, at least by the elites. Very often, I, I would argue that the middle Americans, whether Democrat or Republican, have a much bigger overlap than you would see from looking at the talking heads. But I do think the norms of the cultural elites have diverged very much from that of the middle American. If you look, for example, I think a Pew researcher, somebody did this, I forget who did this, but they did a study looking at various positions on different issues. And part of what's happened is that many of the positions that, say, Bill Clinton would have taken in the mid-90s on social matters would be considered far on the right today, hmm. or even Obama right? Who yeah. actually said he was against gay marriage. So that um, all I'm sort of saying is, so that's one, but I think that's minor. That's secondary compared to the bigger problem. The U.S. has been built on growth. Part of what smoothed out our problems are high rates of economic growth. But economists have pointed out that not only has economic growth slowed over the last 50 years, but more important, productivity growth has slowed. That is to sort of say, if you look so, for example, I often tell this to my students. When I was a boy, this is not the future I envisioned. And the example I always give is that when I first went to the U.S. for college in 1977, I rode a 747, which was a cool airplane. The fact yeah. that in the just a couple of years ago, lots of airlines were still using 747s is nuts to me. <laughs> the fact that half a century ago, right? In comparison, let's compare 1975 to even 1930s, 45 years. You can't even begin to compare it. You're going from mostly wood and cloth airplanes to jet liners that can cross the Atlantic, right? And we've got rocket ships. You know, just think about through my youth alone, just in the first probably 10 or 15 years of my life, you saw everything not only from the moon landing, but commercial jetliners, rocket ships, heart transplants, polio vaccine, I mean, cassette tapes, and then the early beginnings of digital recording. It just it goes on and on and on and on and on. Today, almost all of the innovations, are big innovations, are just the internet and computer related, which are great. But in all, every other area of the economy, everything slowed down. I think somebody pointed out that the official time schedule of trains from New York to Boston in 1939 is faster than you get, get from New York to Boston by train today. Huh. Um, I don't want to diverge too much, but Go how ahead. much of that do you think is, yeah, just a mini tangent here. How much of it that do you think is related to the financialization of the economy? Um, where not like we've changed, our innovation is now in financial instead of no, saying. No, not at all. That's not true. Not that innovation is just in finance. We had a lot of finance earlier on too. I mean, for I example. I guess I just mean like the brunt of the, the effort and like the, the brain power, I suppose, as it shifts. Well, I think the brain power going there is just part of the winner-take-all phenomenon. It's the same way that inequality is mostly driven by the highest paid CEOs in the highest paid industries. Somebody mm -hmm. pointed out, uh, somebody's done this research, I forget, that says that inequality between businesses mirrors the inequality within the businesses, the same businesses. So in other words, when we think of inequality, it's not that all tech CEOs get a lot. It's a few tech CEOs mm -hmm. get a lot. So even among tech CEOs, there's a huge winner-take-all. In contrast, a lot of the non-sexy industries aren't winner-take-all. That's why we, we don't talk about them. But, you know, the gap between, say, a normal CEO in that industry and a top CEO is much smaller than the gap between your typical tech CEO and, you know, the Teslas or the Microsofts yeah. or the Facebooks. So I think that's part. So I do not 
agree with the claim that financialization makes it more visible, hmm. but it's not, it's hardly the driver, I would say. Okay. And so a moment ago, you mentioned um, the change from, you know, more cooperative to battling over um, the positional good of power and the culture wars today. And one of, one of the things you said as the, the two main drivers of that was the cultural elites are, have the two different narratives Mm-hmm. And perhaps what you're saying, flyover America, is maybe not as divided. And I guess the question is: Are we? Do we have too many elites battling over this positional good of power, and and that's why we're seeing these different camps? I think if you look historically, almost all gr- great revolutions are initially battles between elite factions. Okay. So even something like. Uh, the French Revolution often involved battles between the new bourgeois sort of business elites and the old royalists and sort of the, the nobility. And, you know, after all, uh, even take the Soviet Union, it was not the people rising up against it because the, the first the real Re- Russian Revolution was a liberal revolution. It's only that the Bolsheviks seized power from the liberal revolution in a short period of time. They had nothing to do with the original Russian revolution. Mm -hmm. So that you always have, if you like, elite factions. They may not be always elite in status, right? Elite faction doesn't necessarily mean they're necessarily from the richest classes or whatnot. But very small groups often are the ones who are have the interest in shaping things to their preferences. I mean, the average person just wants a better version of what he has every day. Yeah. How would you define the two elite groups or factions in the U.S. currently that are battling over the um, what the culture and identity of America should be? Well, I mean, I would sort of say there's what I call the far pro- progressive leftist wing, which has been pushing in the direction of interpreting liberalism as loosely as possible. It's, it's all about stretching the boundaries of liberalism. So th- mm-hmm. that this is also part of the definition of what it means to be liberal America. So, for example, the classical liberals or libertarians will talk primarily about the role of personal freedoms. And conservative liberals in the sense of Burke, going back to the 18th and 19th centuries, are more interested in personal freedoms that are constrained within a system that maintains a coherent set of beliefs. Whereas um, I would sort of say left liberals tend to think more in terms of personal freedom, but also in this narrative of oppression versus non-oppression. If one group is oppressed, the thing is to oppose that. But notice even in that narrative, um, there's a certain incoherence because you can't simultaneously maintain the fiction of meritocracy while also sort of saying you should have representation independent of that relative merit. So one of the promises of the United States is that the initial claims about discrimination were we were denying highly highly accomplished people who are often the most, you know, taken sports. We were denying some of the most accomplished athletes in the world the opportunity to compete on an equal footing. But that's not the same story you're hearing with respect to admissions in top universities now. Moreover, it's a very selective oppression narrative. I'm very sensitive to this because I'm Asian American. I'm from the Philippines, but I'm of half Chinese descent. And I get to see the fact that one group or several groups get considered to be oppressed minorities, whereas Asians are not. Because Asians actually have done well, despite their handicaps, they are often discriminated against the way Jews were in the 1930s. I believe Jerome Carabell in the book The Chosen, which is a study of admissions in the Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, is the first, is one of the ones, early ones to point out that all the devices used by Harvard, Yale, and Princeton to restrict Jews in the 30s and 40s are exactly the same rationales being used to restrict Asian Americans entering the Ivy League. Hmm. So, so that's an example where, I mean, after all, if you look at Chinese Americans, they had nearly the status of slaves 
in the late 19th century when they came to work in railroads. Japanese Americans didn't just worry about, um, you know, you see a lot of stuff about the Tuskegee Airmen, but Japanese Americans were actually put in concentration camps. And many of them lost their livelihoods and their homes during World War II. And yet, we do not talk about the pressure narrative for Japanese Americans because Japanese Americans are among the highest earning income group in the United States. One of the things that has irritated me time and again is I will see many studies, even from top places like NBER, which will talk about, say, representation of minorities in computer mm-hmm. science, and they will leave out the Asian category. Huh. I've seen I've seen things in New York Times where they'll sort of say test scores for young children have all declined or flattened since the say early two thousands across all ethnic groups, and then there's no Asian mentioned. And I went back to the original data, and it turns out all ethnic groups declined except Asian Americans. We are a very inconvenient group, and so that's also a classic positional good. It's much harder to maintain. I'm not saying there aren't issues for other minorities to overcome, but I'm saying in order to have a unified narrative, they are literally willing to step on their own principles on on these matters. And that's, it's clear that these contradictions are not easily sustainable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, reading your concepts of positional goods, and I was mixing that with really similar thoughts of what you're saying right now about um, just liberalism in general mm-hmm. and how it needs to have barriers to break through there. Mm-hmm. There almost has to be some type of restriction and that needs to find a way to break through that restriction or that taboo. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, there must always be things to be breaking through. And it seems like it eventually would kind of eat itself because it would need to break through its own self-imposed restrictions. Yes. And the fact that you even call that liberalism is, I think, sad because that's not part of what liberalism meant, right? Because liberalism, at mm-hmm. least the earlier liberalism, was always about the constrained notion. This is exactly what a lot of the French Revolution was fought about. There were liberals in the French Revolution who wanted to copy the American Revolution, in which you had the constrained view of liberalism, and in which the rights of mankind were to be limited by checks and balances. In contrast, the radicals said, if your system is democratic, how can you a priori restrict what the people want? And this, this group was an inspiration to the modern groups like the Bolsheviks, this idea of unconstrained. And then what happens in all those cases of the Soviet Union is you get a revolution for the people, but then who gets to decide what the people want? And so both modern communist China and the Soviet Union are inheritors of those extreme traditions. So that even though, ironically, communist China is no longer socialist in terms of its economy, or at least not completely. It's a mixed socialism, capitalism now. It still keeps into, it takes into account this authority that communists particularly believe in, that a particular group, and specifically a party, will get to determine what the priorities are for the country. And so the problem we have in the United States is we believe in democracy, but we know there are checks and balances on these. They were built in from the beginning. But there's a big debate about which of those checks and balances should be loosened, ignored, etc. So I want to ask, how do we move forward? And I guess I'll phrase it in to kind of take away a lot of the complexities that are in the U.S., which Mm -hmm. ultimately isn't real, but just to help kind of frame the question is, imagine a society where everyone's competing for the positional good of power. Mm -hmm. What are the options available for reducing that fighting? Again, I think the major option is to go back to the principles of the Founding Fathers. They understood these problems. If you read the debate in the Federalist Papers, which I have, in fact, I read the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist Papers, this is what they meant, people like Madison meant when he was talking about something like the problem of factions. He's talking about different groups competing, and in the limit, 
if you create enough different factions in democracy, the the, the state becomes unstable. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm not saying that we can't change things. It's clearly social norms have shifted since the 1700s. But there must be more of a genuine dialogue. One of the things I found that uh, people get annoyed when I say this, that <laughs> in the last, since I came to the United States, I've been talked down to by a lot of people who said, we just need more dialogue. And in my opinion, that has taken usually the form, we're going to talk until you agree with me. Hmm. That's what reformers always do. And this is true on many, many, many fronts. I'm being very open about this now because I really think this moment in time is a grave danger to the Republic. And I think this is part of the story, that this assumption that progressivism means accepting social liberalism. You know, can I go off on a tangent, a slightly different one that's related to your question? Yeah. One of the reasons American liberalism has been so influential in the world, or Western, let's not call it American, let's call it Western liberalism, is primarily because of the growth part. Right? Imagine that the US and Western Europe had not been substantially richer than China or the Soviet Union in the 70s. I'm quite sure the willingness of people to transition to Western liberalism would be much weaker. And there was, on, at the same time, there was a much more mixed set of attitudes about American social liberalism. Many of those things were liked abroad, like individual rights, you know, you know, equality for women, equality for minorities. Many of these things are very appealing. But there's no question that it's the driver of all this was economic liberalism. But what's happened is I believe that a lot of the cultural progressives have assumed that these two go in hand in hand, that social liberalism is, is, this, is the necessary counterpoint of economic liberalism. Many of my colleagues still believe that. Hmm. But I think that has been true at points in time, but I do not think it's necessarily always true. So that if you ask countries, would they be willing to be economically liberal like the United States, but not adopt social liberalism? I think that's going, you're going to hear that. But what's even worse is that as our economy falters, as we get slower in growth, few people are going to want to emulate the good things, whether good social liberalism or good economic liberalism. And that's why the slowdown in American productivity since the 70s is so important. It means both more infighting at home and it means less influence for the better abroad. So which do you think is more important if you had to have one, the liberal economy or the liberal social? Well, I think the initial amount of liberalism as we had since the Victorian period through the 1960s, say, was kind of the the standard minimum and, and there's a lot of evidence that liberalism through that time period, both things were good and that they went hand in hand. I am not persuaded that many of the radical things being proposed over the last 25 years, especially things like what I see as the breakdown in meritocracy since I first came to the United States in the 70s uh, and the breakdown in discipline, the idea that any discipline enforced by teachers authoritarian and that this is bad or that discipline within households is bad. I think these things, I think I'm not persuaded, and there's some evidence that many of these things are related to bad outcomes. Uh, And so I'm not at all persuaded. And moreover, what's worse is now people are trying to have very rapid changes, changes that would have been unthinkable a mere decade ago are being pushed upon us. And the assumption that we can just tweak all the foundations of society is exactly anathema to true liberalism. Because liberalism is not about just doing what you want. It's doing what you want within constraints. Hmm. It sounds like you're just overall skeptical about the future of Western civilization. Is that too big of a... 
I, I think I'm not saying, I, I think, for example, you might think for I saying this, the U.S. is in decline. Absolutely. And I think it may be. But ironically, the U.S. is still the leader in both the economic, political and the social spheres, or in all three, actually. And one of the sad things is that the evidence to me, looking back in history, in only a handful of countries in the last hundred years have been able to produce almost all the state-of-the-art inventions. As the U.S. and Europe have been slowing down, and Japan too, catch-up has been very slow. China has been growing rapidly, but they have not been growing rapidly as elite promoters of state-of-the-art findings. If you go back to the early 19th century, even when the U.S. was not one of the global leaders yet, it still was one of the global leaders in terms of innovation. A lot of the foundations of mass, mass production were developed by Americans in the early 1800s. It was actually known as the American system of manufacturers. And you can just look at the list of great American inventors all throughout the 19th century. Mm -hmm. We do not see this. You know, one of the things economists talk about is whether this is just a global slowdown. I don't think this is a global slowdown. I think this is a slowdown in the most elite productive countries. And sadly, mm -hmm. if, every, if every country was capable of picking up the cudgel, you would expect that China and South Korea would be far more productive than they are today. It's, but the fact that they're not suggests one of two things. Either our cultures that have succeeded from Western Europe to Japan to the United States have certain unique aspects about it, or something about the science is limited. So you can't, we just, this is just a period that we can't get out of it and the growth is going to be slow no matter what. I'm not persuaded that's the case. I think that things like overregulation, infighting, focusing on social redistribution instead of production is part of what's slowing us down in a handful of countries. So that's one. Secondly, I think that this I'm a pessimist on. So I'm probably the most pessimistic person you're going to interview in this regard. But, <laughs> but I, I point out that great civilizations that are wealthy, that is, that have overcome Malthusian constraints and produced high levels of innovation, culture, science, technology are very rare. In fact, especially if you focus on the economic part, there have arguably only been two precedents to the modern era. By modern, I'm talking about Western industrial civilization starting from about the mid 1700s today. The only two precedents are perhaps a peak period of ancient Rome and Song China, that is China in the Song Dynasty. That's it. In China in the Song Dynasty, somewhere between the 10th to the 12th centuries, was the peak of Earth's accomplishment in terms of creating large nations which had high technology and higher than Malthusian levels of income. That's it. There are mm -hmm. no other. You can mention all the other empires you want, but they failed the Malthusian test. And... Mm -hmm. The assumption that the last 300 years are the norm, that they're just going to continue no matter what we do, that we can play around with politics, social norms, and we'll get the same outcome, is to me a gamble. People had better hope they're right. Secondly, the other point I would make is that we are too lulled by the Pax Americana. Hmm. Take the, so the, the stock market crisis in 2008. Just a year or two before that, people were sort of saying, oh, the stock markets will always do well. There's never going to be this kind of big crash again. And it's impossible that we're going to get anything like the Great Depression, right? In particular, people like to say that there was only one 10-year period in which bonds outperformed stocks. But then suddenly 2008 happened. So everybody now realizes that we were a bit complacent about the ways in which risks could stack up. And that we could have 2008s, we, maybe not for another 50 years, maybe only 20, we don't know, but it could happen. Well, in my view, the biggest bubble we are not thinking about is the bubble in worldwide peace. There's been a lot of small focus on the little wars that have happened since World War II. But the fact of the matter is, there has not been... There have been almost no periods of time in the last thousand or so years 
in which that are comparable to the last 75 years in which you had two giants like the U.S. and the Soviet Union and now China militarily without a, a massive conflict at some point. And so we've been so lulled into that. We assume peace is natural. It's very unnatural. And I think that if that breaks, we're going to be very sorry. Is it possible to take that seriously without experiencing turmoil? I think so. But it, I, I would say it requires things that people are not very fond of doing now. It means taking seriously the need to counterbalance aggressive moves by China. Because China knows they're behind the United States, but they're playing this game in which if they can push, 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 and the West keeps backing off in the name of making peace, they will become overconfident. Mm -hmm. People don't realize that's part of the reason Japan fought their war, World War II. Um, historians, especially Japanese historians, have written that almost all experts in the 30s said Japan stood no chance against the United States. But the perception within the small group in Japan was that the U.S. had backed down on so many small margins throughout Asia in the 1930s mm. and was so isolationist that Japan could attack. And if they were devastating, the U.S. wouldn't have the stomach to fight a long, bloody war. Does that sound familiar? A lot of people have said this. I believe even bin Laden said, watching the Americans retreat in Beirut and others in the, in the 90s was part of his feeling that if, you know, their groups attacked the United States and tried to provoke a larger war, the U.S. would not have a stomach for it and just retreat. Interesting. And you mentioned Rome and the Song Dynasty. What are some lessons we can draw from that of their, say, sunset or latter years? And how can we apply that thinking about the future of Western civilization today? Well, I would say Rome is a more complicated story because it took a long time. Its decline was of the Western Roman Empire was overspread over a longer period of time. So I don't have time to go into all the historical debates about those reasons. But part of the Roman Empire trans, you know, was transformed into the Eastern Roman Empire. And you could sort of say the Eastern Roman Empire was an extension. So the Greek, uh, but, you know, that wasn't as successful as the classical Roman, the Western Roman Empire, although they did maintain a high level of success in their own ways. Mm -hmm. Song China is very different. Song China is the pure case of complacency and infighting because the mm -hmm. Mongols were clearly not anywhere near culturally, technologically, or any way, a match for the Chinese. But a mixture of internal struggles, as well as underestimation of military risks outside, led to the Genghis Khan and his family, eventually Kublai Khan, his grandson, taking over China, all of China. In fact, not all over China, but most of Eurasia. Right? Mm -hmm. And it tells you, I mean, he is really a black swan. The, the, the Khan family, because after all, the Mongols did nothing as dramatic before or since. Yeah. So it was just one family, if not for this guy, Genghis. This is literally a case in which you can point to one guy literally leading to a devastating change in the lives of hundreds of millions of people all around the world. And I think we underestimate, you know, in the U.S., it's not just... It, and we don't think enough about risks. Like, think about the pandemic. We didn't think very hard about pandemics before this, this last couple of years. In mm -hmm. the same way, we're not thinking very hard about random accidents like volcano explosions, asteroid strikes. I mean, we think about climate change a lot, but that's a long, slow thing that we cannot do by ourselves. Without the cooperation of China and India, I would argue nothing we do in the Western, in terms of limiting, you know, climate change is going to do much good. Hmm. And on the other hand, there are certain things we can do unilaterally. We can build up technologies to mitigate those changes. We can build up technologies to protect us from rare events like volcano explosions or, or you know, asteroid strikes, etc. What I'm sort of saying is that we've had a good run. The last 75 years have been very good. 
overall. There's no doubt about that. We're richer, more prosperous, more free, and we allowed more people to share that prosperity throughout the world. But we shouldn't just behave as if that's natural. It, it took hard work. It took hard work, and a lot of people dying, a lot of mistakes. Think about things like the Civil War. There's, there's no doubt that America was imperfect at its founding. Nonetheless, America helped produce something that is almost unprecedented. It is literally unprecedented in human history. I often make this point. Judge from the scale of human time, the last 300 years are a tiny blip. They're just one breath. But judge from the scale of economic time, almost nothing happened before the 16 or 1700s. You know, it's mm -hmm. all the accomplishments of the economy, I would argue, until the last 500 years or so are tiny compared to the gigantic strides we've made in the last three or 400 years. The ability to have a large number of people have high incomes and a vastly large number of poor people have enough to eat is simply unprecedented. There's nothing like it in human history. And the assumption that that's something that doesn't need to be curated and protected is one of the most, I think, difficult ideas to make. People, you know, I think there's a sense in which liberalism has many good sides. But for me, there's a sense in which if we think too much about ourselves and not about our institutions and how we preserve them, then we speed up the dangers that are always there, but that we've been able to hold off. Mm-hmm. Well, we're getting close to the end of our conversation here, but I want to dive a little bit into institutions, okay. um, like you just mentioned, because mm -hmm. it is such an important part of any culture, any society, any economy. And we are at a time, kind of like I mentioned in the beginning, where we're eroding, our, our trust is being eroded in institutions. Mm -hmm. And so what do we need to do? First off, how should we be thinking about this process currently of just like stepping back, taking a break, taking a breath? Like how should we think about our institutions? And then secondly, what can we do to strengthen them in a good way? Well, first, I think people, I think the people who see themselves winning or promoting change that they desire, whether it's good or bad, are not going to step back. So step back has to be done by the people who are dominant. They're not done by the challengers. It's the, the people who have to step back are people already seeing they've gained a lot. Hmm. So I'm pessimistic that's going to happen. But if we're going to step back, then we really need to ask two things. What parts of our regulations and our constraints are getting too complicated and should we remove? And then how much should we enforce the rules that we already have? So a very good example are the ways in which, say, laws on law and order are being trampled left and right, in which, you know, city, that's a very good one, or, or the fact that immigration is not being, is not being enforced. That this is, we know this is a political weapon. People selectively enforce immigration laws. At the same time, insisting on the maintenance of other laws very strictly. Hmm. Well, well, that's, you know, if you want to change the immigration law, change the immigration law. But for the last 50 years, the modus operandi has been violate when possible and ignore violations. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and I, I just don't see that that's going to build confidence. The same thing with law and order. We need to think more about, because it's clear people want law and order, but there's increasingly a disagreement about how to enforce that and who gets to enforce that, right? And so there needs to be some coming. These are basic things. I'm not talking about things that are wildly radical, right? Think yeah. about law and order or think about education, things we expect from the teachers or don't expect from the teachers. Mm -hmm. These are very, very basic things. But the reason these have become controversial is one group, let's say, wants to impose new curriculum reforms that are actively opposed by a large segment of the public. And you get fights because one, you know, as has been in the notorious case of somebody prominent sort of saying, you know, parents should have no rights to interfere with what their teachers say, what their teachers do. 
That's exactly the wrong way to step back. That sounds to me like the imposition of, we've got the upper hand, so you must follow. Even if they're right, even if these positions are right, they have a duty to persuade people. If people are unpersuaded, you must take that into consideration. You can't just say you're dumb barbarians and you're going to do this whether you like it or not. I mean, if you do, you better be prepared to back that up with force because in mm -hmm. the end, that's what it's going to come to. That's a that's a really interesting point that it's almost like there's this national debate over are we going to convince and compromise or are we going to force right. and implement and, you know, I feel like I'm being generous calling it a debate because it honestly doesn't feel like a debate. It feels more like everyone's just decided to force and implement. H how, how do we change rails here and begin more discussing and compromising? Well, I, I think the answer is that you need elections to show that there are winners on both sides. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you need to have a world in which one side doesn't keep winning. I mean, what's happened is that the only contested sides are primarily in politics, where you have two sides. In, in academia, in large parts of the bureaucracy, in the media, in the Hollywood culture, you have only one side. There's no doubt. You, you can't deny that there's no re real space for the right in many of these circumstances. Mm -hmm. Even for religion, the way religion is talked about is that religion is a support to progressive policies. But the discussion of when and where religious values should enter into the public life is crazy because that's one of the things even many Democrats believe in very greatly. I mean, religion is a very big part of people's lives. But the fact that the popular culture doesn't reflect that. And in fact, denigrates that. How many shows do you see where the criminal is or, or the transgressor is a priest or is a minister of something of that sort? And how many shows do you see in which the good character is also a church-going individual, even though that is an active part of middle Americans' lives, both Democrat and Republicans, fairly universal. So when you say, the mere fact that you said everybody has decided this, you're not really talking about everybody. You're talking about the groups that are in political control of the major institutions of the United States, but especially those that's, that shape the debate, the news media, the culture, the various kinds of internet moguls, and then at the moment, the people in power. But that can change. Who is president or who is in Congress or Senate, in some ways you could argue that one of the reasons the middle Clinton era was good is that you had a balance. You had Clinton as, as president, but you had a Republican Congress. Those mm -hmm. kinds of things often produce good compromise. But what yeah. we're seeing now is that almost a uniformity of debate within academia, within, um, within teaching of schooling, Within many of the social sciences, I mean, for example, there was a, there was actually a, there have been surveys showing that many people of social sciences said, answered the survey, professors, that they would actively discriminate against a candidate for professorship with conservative views, that they see part of the mandate of the social sciences is promoting certain positions. All that will lead to is a world in which middle America will not trust experts. Yeah. which is tied into exactly what we're having with the pandemic. Consistency, yes. I think, is important. Mm -hmm. John, well, we're wrapping up here. Uh, this has been such a wide-ranging conversation, and I just want to thank you so much for the direction you've taken us throughout this conversation, and hopefully folks have thought of some of these perspectives in perhaps a different way and and just seeing these topics in a perhaps different light and can think about the people that they strongly disagree with with a little more openness perhaps um if folks want to find more of your work where can they do that well i mean it's just uh i i tend not to maintain my sites as much mostly in the academic journals and you just google my name there's a lot of there's some writings i've written but mostly i don't write very many pop things so okay. <laughs> it's, it's just the way it is. And uh, I, I, I look forward to uh, finding out what people think. After all, I can be and often am wrong. Yeah, that's a good way to approach all this stuff. 
is I, I can be wrong and let me put my thoughts out there and see what happens. Very good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, it looks like you stuck with us to the end and thank you so much. Please like, subscribe, rate, and review. It honestly is the best way to help us reach a broader audience and that's the only way we can keep bringing you good content every single week and that is our goal here. So we look forward to seeing you next week and thank you so much.